0: Welcome to episode 120 of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan coleman Lamb, and I am joined today by my friends Johanna. Hey, Johanna.
1: Hey, how are you doing?
0: I'm great. Uh, And Derek Silva. Derek,
2: how are you doing? Uh, Very well. I can't believe we're at 120 episodes.
1: (laughs) I was thinking that too, 120. And we're all actually together somehow. Yeah, it's
2: wild. Yeah, it's wild.
1: a while
0: exactly and one of the ways we got there is that we have been recording and releasing throughout the summer and i know that summer is um uh not really busy time for people but the kind of t- the kind of busy where people are spending less time listening to podcasts and more time you know doing lovely things i hope um that are even better than listening to podcasts but if that's you and that means that you kind of haven't really been up to date throughout the summer i just want to kind of remind everyone of some of the episodes that we have done, because I think that uh, there's no reason why you can't go back and listen to that archive. They're evergreen, as most of our episodes usually are. Um, so at the beginning of June, we had Johanna talking to Frankie de la um, Great episode there about um, all the questions we're always trying to explore about trans participation in sport. Uh, then we had Teresa Runstetler come on and talk to us about her work on uh, the NBA and racism. Historically speaking, uh, really one of my favorite conversations we've ever had. Uh, After that, I talked to the leader of the New Brunswick Provincial Liberal Party, Susan Holt, about uh, all the politics here that we're experiencing. And uh, we'll get into some of that later in the episode. Then we had a two-parter with uh, the really terrific uh, assistant professor, sport management at University of Connecticut, Chen Chen, about sport management as a discipline a conversation that we've been building up to for a long time. And I really think that that's one for most of our regular listeners, regular listeners of this show. That's a conversation if you haven't heard it. I think you're going to want to listen to both parts of that one. Uh, And then just to round it out, we had a few more, I think, really key episodes. We had Zach Furness come on and talk to us about sort of the lived experience of having a former professional football player in the family, his father, and what that meant for him as a critical scholar of sport but also what it meant personally in his life. A really powerful conversation. And then Johanna talked to Kelly Wright, one of our best great friends of the show, about uh, all kinds of issues with respect to decoding racism in sport and popular culture. And finally, Derek and I talked to Christy Alain about hockey and hockey culture. And I think that for us was a, a really important conversation we needed to have because people talk all the time about hockey culture, but what actually is it? It's sort of a question that sometimes people are left with and we really tried to just as comprehensively as possible unpack that one um so again please check out that archive please share the show we're in a sort of desperate circumstance now with respect to social media where you know the primary way in which we have tried to get this podcast out there is through twitter above all and now we all know that that website is broken so um if you could uh subscribe to the show that would be really deeply appreciated because that's the the most sort of direct way that you can get access to every episode and you don't need to worry about hearing us tell you about it on social media but we are also on blue sky same as our twitter address it's at end of sport pod dot b sky dot social in that case and i think that's pretty much all um the kind of the the business end of this conversation. And what I want to do next is take it to the current events that we've been thinking about all summer, but not talking about. Because that's really the point of the show today. We want to talk about um, the things that have been happening because there's been a lot happening in the world of sport. And um, what we're going to focus on today, because these are the things that we focus on a lot, and these are the things that we've been really thinking about. We're going to focus on Issues in college sports, and we're going to get into them because there are a lot of issues in college sports, and then we're going to switch gears and we're going to get back into those trans participation sport issues because I think that they've really been among the most important social issues um, in North American society today. Um, So with that, I'm going to send it to the episode. Because it's us and me, um, I think we got to start this conversation with the college sports and really college football issues that um, have been kind of front of mind for me this summer. And I would say, and you know, people, people will dispute me on this because actually this has been the summer of college sports off field or court issues. Um, so there's a lot we can talk about and we'll talk about, but I, I would argue that the most salient of those is the hazing scandal at Northwestern University. I imagine that many, if not most of our listeners will be familiar, but I do think, you know, for this conversation to be coherent at all, we need to sort of establish some context for what has happened at Northwestern. And I'm going to do that based primarily on the reporting of the remarkable young student journalists at the Daily Northwestern, the student newspaper at the school, because if it were not for the journalists at the Daily Northwestern, Quite frankly, there would be no Northwestern hazing scandal because the Northwestern University would have successfully covered up the history of hazing at their university, which they were well aware of, but not keen to share with the rest of us. Now, I'm going to quote here from the first blockbuster story published by the Daily Northwestern. They wrote, Quoting a player, I've seen it with my own eyes, and it's just absolutely egregious and vile and inhumane behavior the player who asked to remain anonymous in the story said. The former player said he reported his experiences to the university in late November 2022. He alleges that much of the team's hazing centered around a practice dubbed running, which was used to punish team members, primarily freshmen, for mistakes made on the field and in practice. If a player was selected for running, the player who spoke to the Daily said they would be restrained by a group of 8 to 10 upperclassmen dressed in various purge-like masks. Would then begin dry humping the victim in a dark locker room. Quote, It's a shocking experience as a freshman to see your fellow freshman teammates get ran, but then you see everybody bystanding in the locker room, the player said. It's just a really abrasive and barbaric culture that has permeated throughout that program from years on end now. The daily obtained images of whiteboards labeled Runs Giving and Shrek's List containing a list of names indicating players that the, play- that the player said needed to be ran. The player said the tradition was especially common during training camp and around Thanksgiving and Christmas, which he said the team called Runsgiving and Runsmith. It's done under the smoke and mirror of, oh, this is team bonding. But no, this is sexual abuse, the player said. Now. After this initial report, sorry, after essentially the original report was received, so there was an independent investigation commissioned by the university into these practices because of the reports that came, you know, in November, as was cited in that story. And as a consequence of that, the university's president, Michael Schill, decided to suspend head coach Pat Fitzgerald for two weeks during the summer and right? essentially a summer vacation. And that was it there was, you know, some, some verbiage around how they were going to change some policies internally and so forth and that hazing is very bad and all that sort of nonsense, right? But essentially, the, the, law, the upshot of the entire investigation was a two-week suspension. But then a day later, the Daily Northwestern story was published. And soon after, the president reversed course and fired Coach Pat Fitzgerald in what I can only describe as an attempted cover-up gone wrong. Now. Since that time, which was again at this point in early July, we've learned about more egregious details, including the complicity of assistant coaches who have been named in subsequent lawsuits brought against the university, one of whom is employed by my former employer, Duke University, as an assistant coach. Uh, And he was called a very good man just last week by Mike Elko, the current head coach of Duke University. So I would really encourage anyone in the Duke community and beyond uh, to pay very close attention to what's happening there, okay? Because that, that that should come under, I think, very significant scrutiny. Um, if this is a person who um, apparently was an instigator of some of these humping practices and so forth, um, and now supposedly, right, that's, <laughs> that's all at the window. He's a very good man who's part of a wonderful culture at Duke University's okay. brotherhood. Yeah, um, yeah you, you got to wonder what's happening there behind closed doors. So that, that's something we, we got to be thinking about. Now, another piece to the scandal at Northwestern is that there is a a racism component here, right? And and this is not surprising because we know that the plantation dynamics pervade college sport, but it's still very important, I think, to highlight some of these details because they give us a window into what is taking place on these campuses. And here now we have another daily Northwestern story that I'm quoting from. It said, Diaz, the former offensive lineman who's um, referenced in the story, is now a clinical therapist. He said the program's culture had a profound mental impact on it. He was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder after graduating from Northwestern and said that his time on the football team was a major factor in that diagnosis. After graduating, he would have flashbacks of things that happened in the football locker room and nightmares. He said, "The fact that I'm still going to a therapist and talking about these things after more than 10 years is indicative of the mental health state I was left in. He has said, "I didn't even watch a football game again for almost 5 years after I left Northwestern." It was that negative of an experience for me that I didn't want anything to do with the sport. Diaz described several racist remarks players and coaches said to him. One teammate asked him why he didn't play soccer instead of football. He said he was also forced to shave Cinco de Mayo into his hair during a tradition where freshmen would shave messages on their heads. Both Diaz and the second anonymous player detailed an instance in which a former offensive line coach joked by asking Diaz how to clean a dirty room. The coach then made a racist joke about how Diaz's family must know how to clean houses, both former players said. Diaz said he heard the same coach tell a black teammate to stop wearing certain hats because he, quote, wasn't in the hood anymore, before calling the way he walked a, quote, gangster walk. He also said he once heard a player tell another black teammate to show, him quote, how monkeys act. Then we have a quote here. Your blackness was not allowed to shine through, whether it was how you carried yourself all, all your way down to your hair. The first anonymous player set. Now, if was, as if that wasn't enough, we've also learned in recent days, very recently, this just this news just emerged that quote several Northwestern coaches and staffers, including offensive coordinate coordinator Mike Bajakian or Bajakian, are donning quote cats against the world shirts with number fifty one Pat Fitzgerald's old jersey number on them. Right. So again, what we see, in other words is the former, the players on the te- still on the team, the staff that remains from Pat Fitzgerald's staff, because he was the only person punished for this culture of hazing, are now essentially proclaiming to the world that they are in solidarity against all the people accusing them of hazing. Now, for even further context here before, and I, I'm of course going to throw this to, to Derek and Johanna to, to get their thoughts, but I just really want to establish what has been going on and what we've learned about sort of toxic cultures that pervade college football. I think it's important to talk about front office sports coverage of Minnesota football. And in a story about Minnesota football, another Big Ten school, we learned, quote, that a player player said this, and I quote, we had to practice giving coach PJ Fleck ovation multiple times. The first time, because some other people in the back were not moving as quick as he wanted, a player told front office sport. Two other former players said that Fleck would re-enter a room if he didn't like the ovation he received. (laughs) After that first meeting in 2017, players received a three-ring binder they were required to memorize and on which they were tested. Front office sports obtained several pages of the binder used by Fleck during that time. The the third player said that one acronym that they had to learn stood out. It was FAMILY, right? Short for, forget about me, I love you. Quote, he was making us say, forget about yourself as an individual, the player said. I was baffled because it's not anything logical. If you forget about yourself, then who are you? Added a fourth player. It's based around flex ego. You have to talk a certain way. You have to be a certain way. Within that building of the University of Minnesota, it's very much like brainwashing. Now, the last thing I want to add is some of the reporting that Derek and I did for The Guardian. We talked to uh, a former player, a former SEC football player, recently graduated, and he told us with respect to, beyond Northwestern, beyond Minnesota, how this kind of culture of hazing and toxicity pervades college football more broadly. He said, every team usually has two methods of hazing. One done by staff and coaches, either singling individuals out to make examples of them, or deterring people from being injured with uncomfortable alternative workouts. And the other is through encouraging or turning a blind eye to self-policing by the team. Basically encouraging, bullying, hazing to maintain the status quo. Although he said he was fortunate only to have received what he characterized himself as mild hazing, he did say the most obvious instances he experienced were like sort of freshman skits where they were expected to serve as entertainment during fall camp. He heard many stories of more significant hazing cultures at other schools, including he said, and I quote, I know several universities that had normalized physical hazing that involved naked teammates going after and wrestling other naked teammates, whether or not they were game for the force play. I know that one school had a tug of war punishment where people often had their hands torn up and their ankles twisted. He also said that locker room hazing was not the only issue. He was also aware of a pretty common history of coaches encouraging disputes to be unquote settled, which often involves supplying boxing gloves to players. And in fact, if the boxing gloves weren't around, the coaches themselves would provide them. All right. So I've thrown a lot of material at you folks here, but I think, um, I don't, and I don't know if you, who wants to start, Johanna or Derek, but what I kind of want to unpack is then, what do we learn from all this about the world of college football and college sport? Like, what, what kind of takeaways are there beyond the kind of headline, you know, this is pretty gruesome stuff?
2: Yeah, I mean, when you ask the question, what does this teach us sort of about the world of college sport? I immediately think, like, sadly, that this type of abuse and this harm is part and parcel to the world of college sport um, and the institutions and the, the schemes that we've put in place to so-called protect athletes. Um, and, and keep in mind, I think it's important, and maybe we'll get to this later, but it's important to recognize that these are uh, that college athletic programs are indeed situated in, within universities. Um, so, these universities have created an entire environment where abuse and harm um, in the form of hazing, but also in the form of other forms of sexual abuse, straight up violence, physical abuse, um, that we've created this context that's adjacent and very much connected to higher education, where this not only can proliferate um, and these, these really violent and really horrible forms of behavior and just abhorrent behavior not only can these can these things proliferate but in, in many ways they're they're almost desired, which is really horrifying to say um, they're desirable and then on top of that, when there is even a sniff of sort of accountability um, or like um, news breaks that these things get out there, it's very easy to completely quash um, any stories about this and to to actually have any accountability take take place and it just highlights how difficult that kind of process is how difficult it is for athletes who who are inarguably um, uh, on the bottom end of the power dynamic when it comes to college sports that it, it's it's sort of not surprising that that because of the system and the structures at play, that these folks don't feel comfortable to come out. They don't feel comfortable to to talk about the things that happen. And therefore the system sort of keeps going. The system really keeps going. And and to bring it back to a a, a very recent guest, um, Lay wrote about this um in the context of young men in the Canadian Hockey League, um, in an article called What Happens in the Locker Room Stays in the Room. I think that's what that's what it's called. Um, and highlighted how that The CHL is very similar in terms of its kind of pseudo amateur um, uh, orientation, but how many people are complicit in in silencing folks who even want to come out in the first place. So to return to the question, like, what does this tell us about that? This is college sport. This is college football. Hazing is not some relic of the past, which we wrote about in The Guardian. It's not some relic that existed back then, and we've we're so much more civilized now, uh, or more more enlightened now. It's happening now. It's still present. It still is part of the entire environment of college sport and college football. And I think that you could even connect that. You could even uh, go a little bit wider and and generalize that to sport in general, um, which which I think we can in this episode, perhaps Johanna has some, some thoughts on that um, because we we've talked about it on this show. So, so Johanna, what do you think um, about all of this?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's college sport. It's all sport. That that was kind of, kind of be my comment. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I really have kind of much, many new things to say because it's just like business as usual. I mean, it's, it's horrifying and it's awful. And I'll admit that when, all of this was breaking. I didn't pay the most attention to it because sometimes I just like, I can't read about this stuff. And I, you know, I'm sure everyone feels that way, right? That it's just like too much. And it's just like yet another story. Um, and I, I mean, it's so clear that, I mean, hazing just serves such like a a tool for like disciplining and punishing bodies. And that is what sports are about, right? It's it's about starting control. Like it should be about uh, an individual having like bot like learning bodily autonomy, right? Learning how their body works, pushing themselves, but like learning their limits and being able to figure out how to like rein themselves in so they can do sports in a way that like promotes, you know, good movement for the body that's not going to push themselves too hard. But like as we've talked about for 119, 120 episodes now, right? Like we know that like the power dynamics are such that athletes have such little power and I I think when it comes to, you know, the, the sexual abuse part of it, like, it's just so sad. Like as someone who just, I know we're going to talk about this later, right. I wrote this piece for the guardian in July about like gendered violence. And I was focusing on like violence against women, trans women, cis women. Um, but like, I have a link in there that talks about like very briefly about how like cisgender men are also, you know, victimized, um, you know, sexually and, even though we have so many stories about that, like we have so much evidence that that happens, we still like we do not talk about it enough. It still is way, way, way taboo. There was um a case, and I was trying to find the link about um a high school a high school football team somewhere in California, and um basically the coach's daughter was a trainer for the team, and she was sexually abusing the male players on the team. And it was not a hazing thing per se, but it was like this thing where everybody knew that she was sexually abusing the the teenage high schoolers. And it was sort of a joke amongst the coaches about who's going to be next and who is she sleeping with now, right? So like, I think this happened so much and we just don't even know about it. I I have recently learned of stories that were going on when I was coming up as a swimmer that are not my stories to share, that are absolutely shocking and really like shocked me to the core when I learned about it because I knew these people around me and it was happening, but I didn't know it was happening at the time. And so I just think when I read these things, and especially when I read when I when when um when I read it and, and when Nathan, when you were talking about Diaz. And he was saying that it's taken him, that he's still in therapy to deal with this shit. And like he is... I don't want to say a lucky one, but he's actually like in therapy. He's actually thinking about these these things. He's actually trying to process this stuff, and obviously he has his own training to do that as to help himself do that as well. But like we know that like even though mental health is such a buzzword now, that really it's just like a. I think I think honestly the mental health discussion is like a cover. It's like a way to Mm -hmm. say, oh, we're you know we're taking care of athletes, but like we're not actually doing anything structurally to help them. You know, nil does not help with mental health or physical health or any of these other things. Um, and so I just think, I don't know. I just that really, really struck me because it just shows like how long lasting this is. You know, we, we know, for example, that like CTE, even though CTE is still not talked about enough, there is some general understanding that this impacts you for the rest of your life. And I have a feel, I just, I just always have this hunch that like when it comes like sexual violence and emotional, you know, emotional abuse and all of this stuff people still don't think through the decades, if not the lifetime Mm -hmm. that it takes to actually deal with this stuff. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, I was not a victim of sexual abuse. I was not a victim of racism and the way that some of these players were. But like, I'm still dealing with the shit that I went through, which is what I talk about in that piece, right? I'm still going to therapy, trying to figure out when can I actually like get in a swimsuit and like get in a pool and feel good about myself. Like I haven't done that in a long time. So then when you add in like, gendered violence by your teammates who you're supposed to lean on and trust and also your coach who's supposed to you know kind of guide you towards some kind of better like emotional physical development um yeah it just I I don't know it's a lot of rambling but I just it's just it's really upsetting and it just goes to show that like Derek as you said like this is this is sports. This is sport culture, right? This, it is college sport, but this is sports culture in generally. And I'll be very honest. I think this all the time. Like, I'm so glad I don't have children. Mm -hmm. And like, both of you have children. So I hate saying that. And many, many, many of our listeners have children, but like to have to worry that your child might be involved in sports and might go through this, like, that's absolutely terrifying. And like, that's terrible to say, because like, I, I know that probably makes people with children feel even worse about themselves, but like, it is absolutely terrifying. And like, whenever, whenever anybody talks to me about like their kids getting into sports, I'm like telling them, like, you cannot trust the coaches. You cannot trust trainers. You cannot trust doctors. You don't even know if you can trust your child's teammates. Clearly. You know, so like, I just, I don't know, that's a whole lot of rambling, but that's kind of where I'm at about like, what does this tell us about like modern sports in our society?
0: Yeah, well, and, and coming to that last point about trusting teammates, you know, I just, because there were a couple of themes I wanted to, to just to pull out um, before we continue talking about the higher ed piece to this. But, um, I mean, a theme that Derek and I saw emerge from our own interviews, um, And that I have been watching play out every time that there's a story where we have athletes who are, you know, really courageous enough to, to resist the status coercion at the core of college sport that makes it so exceptionally difficult to speak freely about any harm that occurs, right? Because there's going to be backlash, but, but also there's just material consequences given that you are not compensated for this work. What you get is opportunity. What you get is access to networks. Uh, But that means that you have to cultivate and retain that kind of social capital you have in your relationships with the people on the team. And so burning bridges is essentially like burning your compensation as well Mm -hmm. along the way. And it's just such a disincentive that it makes it exceptionally difficult to speak out. And yet again, I mean, this, this became almost an exhibit A case for that phenomenon. We literally had a letter emerge, which, by the way, the mainstream sports media complex, bloody people at ESPN were too delighted to share with the world for clicks on social no, media absolutely. without vetting. But they literally published a letter through Adam Rittenberg's Twitter feed, a letter saying that the entire it was signed by the quote unquote, the entire team, oh, right, right. The Northwestern football team saying that they repudiated all of these claims that all of this was lies, none of this mm. ever happened, right? And you had and then you had other people under their own names going out and saying, Fitzgerald, the coach, is such a hero and uh. none of this happened and blah, 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 right? It's the ultimate wagon circle. like. And what I want to underline, because this is what Johanna was getting at, like on top of, you know, that being kind of odious in its own right, but I mean, imagine this from the perspective of survivor, right? Mm-hmm. What this mm-hmm. means in terms of compounding abuse, it is the ultimate form of gaslighting, you are telling people who have suffered this trauma that it did not happen. You are screaming out loud to silence them when they have the courage to come forward. Um, it's it's really deeply disturbing, right, yeah. from that standpoint. Um, so I think we, we always have to be cognizant, though, of the fact that because what happens is when you see this stuff, it's very... Um, seductive to think, well, all these people are saying that it didn't happen, right? And maybe only one person or two people said it did happen. So like, clearly, you know, it's just, you know, it's some kind of lie or some kind of smear campaign. Um, And you have to remember the material incentives here. You Mm -hmm. have to remember Mm -hmm. the incentive structure everyone is incentivized to cover it up because if there's a culture of hazing that means that most people were complicit in it right right right. so of course the incentive for the vast majority of people involved is to deny that it happened they are the culprits they are the ones who were doing the hazing right it's not just some you know mysterious person out there it's not just the coach now the question of complicity is very complicated obviously Beyond the coach, when it comes to players and people who've been socialized in this environment, I'm not trying to diminish how complicated it is that people who are experienced trauma then reproduce trauma. Those are really complicated things, right? Yeah. But there is complicity there, and there is an incentive to say, "No, this didn't happen." Yeah, so and that's I, one thing I really. Yeah, go ahead. Well,
1: and I was going to say too. I mean, yeah, this complicity, this complicity point, I think, as you said, is really important because it's like not only do people have to recognize their complicity, but also the fact that they were victimized too right and so many people do not want to realize that i mean so so many people i mean i, I had a conversation with a former college football player who's, like a decade and a half older than me like 2 years ago now and like he would not he was not willing to admit that like there was nothing that he did on the field that was not of his own free will right like when i was trying to explain to him the really complicated dynamics of the fact like you cannot say no to your coach And he was like, no, I was in complete control of everything that I was doing. I I gave consent to everything. And I was like, I'm glad that was your experience. But like, that may not be everybody's. And he Mm -hmm. got so angry, like not necessarily at me, but angry at this idea that I was suggesting. That he or anybody else was not in full control of what they were doing and that they that they did not feel influenced or I hate to use that word influenced, or like coerced to make decisions, to go along with things that maybe they would not have chosen to do otherwise. Right. Yeah. So so much of it is like the complicity aspect, but also a lot of people, I think a lot of cisgender men, cisgender white men do not want to consider themselves to have been victims because that means that they were quote unquote weak, that they didn't do enough to sign up for themselves, et cetera. Right. Mm-hmm. Which I think is another really important part of it.
0: Absolutely. Uh, The other thing I want to say about that is that if we're talking about the the kind of like the the coach's role, right, in all of this, because if we're talking about complicity, then uh, it's a totally different level of accountability when it comes to coaches, the people responsible, whether or not, by the way, there's a whole debate over whether Fitzgerald knew or not. And the right answer is, if he knew, it's, you know, deeply, deeply disturbing that he was consciously and willfully enacting this regime of horror upon players. And if he didn't know, he utterly failed in his responsibility as the leader of the team to be aware of the culture that was being promoted and to look after the safety of the players under his watch and authority, right? So it doesn't really matter if he knew from the standpoint of him needing to lose his job uh, and be held accountable for it. But what I thought was almost like in a dark way, a hilarious turn here is that the new coach of the team now on the subject of the t-shirts, right? These players were wearing that were saying like, you know, essentially like, in supporting Fitzgerald and like them against the world and all that. He said, when asked about why he allowed the players to wear the shirts, he didn't want to censor their free speech, if you can believe that. And I find that to be like the darkest humor possible because what is status coercion, but coaches as authoritarian dictators, like in the case of Minnesota, for instance, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Who are literally... Compelling people applaud to act me. in the exactly applaud me in the most scripted possible ways. The Northwestern football handbook from this is I know this only because of Aaron Hatton's wonderful book. coerced, right? It's by the way, it's not a coincidence. Literally, we're talking about Northwestern, the same yeah. program that we've been talking about this entire time. Mm. Their handbook, whether it was 2014 or in another adjacent year, had very concrete instructions about what people were not allowed to do on social media and said things like, if you don't want to be, you know, other people would walk on glass to be in your shoes. So don't jeopardize that opportunity and things of that nature. Right. I mean, it's all pure coercion. But when it comes to practicing apologism for hazing, then, then it's all about free speech. Yeah. Yeah. And the last, honestly, the last thing on this, let me just say, we say this all the time, so I almost don't want to spend any time, but like there's really only one takeaway above all for me, which is that yeah. like unions, right. unions, right. unions are the fucking answer to this question, right? Because what do we have here? We have a situation where there's no recourse. Absolute mm-hmm. authority is yep. up to coaches. Either the coaches are abusing you or the coaches are letting you be abused, but telling us that we don't need you. Literally, again, how about this? How perfect is this? Literally, yet again, the program that tried to unionize and the person who said that unions were not necessary in college sport was a man by the name of pat fitzgerald at northwestern university who stood up and said my culture is so good i am such a wonderful leader they don't need a union yeah Yeah. well you fucking do in every single circumstance because the pat fitzgeralds of the world if they're not torturing you They're hanging you out to dry and letting you get abused by someone else. And the only recourse is a union that is in a direct antagonism with the employer and whose entire purpose is to fight for your well-being and to never, never prioritize institutional demands over your own. So the, the unions matter for money, they matter for healthcare, but they damn well matter for safety and for well-being when it comes to the experiences of college athletes. And there is no better evidence for this than the case of Northwestern,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And the the obvious thing there is that like the only way I I think what gets often overlooked in these discussions it becomes a discussion about compensation. Um, and I think that okay that is very very real. We have to have the conversations about com- compensation um, for athletic workers. But we we've we've talked about this a million times on this podcast. What often gets overlooked at the expense of focusing on compensation is the The fact that unions will are the only way to offer true health and safety protections for employees. It's the only. It's the only way. in In the history of um, workplace law, we've seen the, the unions make the strides in every. Every time it comes down to issues of health and safety, people dying on jobs, people getting injured on jobs, people falling victim to coworker violence or coach or uh, employer violence. Um, so, so I I I just want to underscore that point that you made there, Nathan. That that like we have to have these discussions. And yes, you you're, I I think your assessment is correct. Unionization is the only way. Yeah,
1: yeah. I have nothing right, further yeah. to say. Unions to fight fascist authoritarianism.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So now, not to belabor this too much, but I, 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 before I get on to the next topic, I do actually think, I just to say a quick word about, I think we need to think about how college athletics is situated in universities, right? Yeah. Institutions of higher education. And so like the question that comes from me out of that is, does that create a higher standard for questions around hazing and toxic culture? Does it matter that we are talking about university sport here?
1: Uh I can go I can, I don't know if I have a <laughs> no. good answer for this. I mean, I I'm hesitant to say that there is a, on, on the one hand I want to say instinct yes, there should be a higher standard, but I also don't want to claim that higher, I mean higher ed is no better than anywhere else. So that's where I just think we need to raise the standards everywhere and not just for higher education. Um because we're not like some super elite realm of like Capitalist society that like we deserve to have, have higher standards in other other workplaces, other industries in society. If that makes sense, so I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at.
2: In this so this question is uh, is interesting. I can see I can see Johanna. I can see your hesitation um, with with for, with kind of going one way or the other. I think personally that there is there should absolutely be a higher standard for institutions of so-called higher education. Why? Because institutions of so-called higher education, and I keep saying so-called because I want to make very clear that I do not believe universities are, as they are currently structured, institutions of, of higher education uh, and and knowledge production. But in the, in the perfect world where you have universities are meant to be the sort of um, moral, ethical kind of finding ground. Um, and the whole point of them is to be like critical and create new knowledge and new paths forward and evolve society or societies to kind of new heights and better conditions better working conditions better living conditions better ecological um, conditions that if that's your entire goal uh, and and money is separate from that and money is not important then, you should have a higher standard for how you uh, interact, how you create conditions that cause harm. Um, and as we've seen over the past, what, 50, 60 years, the relationship between universities and capital has completely flipped. Um, whereas I would say, perhaps, um, and there's arguments here, historians would uh, feel free to jump um, at me at Derek Crim and say that before the sort of big time college football, I think universities were much more aligned with the idea of knowledge production, knowledge creation, critical thinking, and money was sort of separate. Capital was a little bit separate. But since the evolution, the dawn and the evolution of big-time college football, and then we saw big-time college basketball follow very quickly, um, and uh, other sports also um, growing uh, in terms of that, we've seen that relationship kind of invert and because universities of higher education are now much more about capital generation, um, and much less about critical thinking, uh, moral, ethical kind of grounding, all of those things, I think we've we've seen these contact uh, these 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 issues of harm or these environments of harm spread, proliferate, all of the above. Um, so, should the question being like, should there be a higher standard? Um, around questions or or for questions around hazing and toxic culture in universities, absolutely. I think Johanna, I completely agree with you. The reason why perhaps in the in the contemporary that this is kind of unimaginable is because institutions of higher education are not no longer um uh, as such. Mm-hmm. they're about revenue generation they're they're a business just like anyone else. so yes, I can see that kind of hesitation there. um mm-hmm. I, I I don't know, I might be just rambling talking in circles here, Nathan.
0: No, I, I I actually want to kind of echo both of you and come out like with you know, in a way like a a middle ground position, which is uh, not that, not that either moderate, of you are taking hard no, but moderate but, Nathan. We got <laughs> I'm, I'm a centrist. A moderate. Um, no, my my position is this: like I actually I agree with Johanna's point as a as a kind of predicate that there is no reason why we should have it fundamentally on a fundamental ontological ethical level. Like there should, we <laughs> yeah. should treat higher education different. No sport is like, people should be treated well in sport period. We should have a standard for that. And there's no better or worse. Like I think all three of us agree actually. And this is one of the things that separates us from many other people, but basically like we're not willing to tolerate <laughs> any level of harm in any site of sport, no matter how much someone's getting paid or not getting paid. Like we're pretty much against it across the board, and we're going to be making a similar kind of argument about why it is um, you know like not defensible, but with that said, I think kind of coming back to now where Derek is like I think we should u- we should leverage the rhetorical and the pragmatic ground that comes from higher education's claims that it is something greater something that something kind of like in the ivory tower right in other words yeah. the claim of the entire ncaa system that it is about student athletes which is to say students first which is to say that it's about learning and nurture and pedagogy the entire thing is cloaked in that kind of rhetoric mm-hmm. and we should use that against these institutions in order to leverage the safety of the athletes that who they are obviously exploiting and not delivering on any of those promises. And that means things like accreditation, right? Like quite literally, their accreditation should be compromised by allowing these practices to occur. They are not fulfilling the fundamental terms that allows them to operate as institutions of higher education. So this isn't like a little bit like, oh no, a little bad thing happened over there in the corner. This actually gets right to the heart of the entire system. If you can't guarantee that things like hazing will never occur on your campuses, right? then you're really raising questions about whether you can exist as the kind of institution that you claim to be. Yeah. Right? And I think that we should be leveraging that against them. So in that way, I do think it matters for that reason. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to bring up, and this is like, now not, this is, not, this is not, not directly engaging either of your points, but I think that there is a role for faculty in this, right? Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think I mean, there has to be. Should- I
2: think yeah. there, it's, there has to be, right? Yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly. At Northwestern and beyond, should be so vocal talking about protecting the rights of students, right? That's where we have, I think we have a role because these are our students. They are. They're literally in our classrooms as well as being on these, on these teams. And that gives us a claim that gives us a kind of authority and leverage again to speak on these issues. And I think that we, we can't sacrifice that and kind of let that go by the wayside when these moments happen. But I worry as we have seen in incidents like the, the unbelievable debacle in Los Angeles with APSA, the American yeah. Political Science Association, <laughs> and the fact that they have oh, not man. been willing even to reschedule or move or whatever their <laughs> conference, even though the entire existence of that conference is crossing a picket line and they've been instructed directly by a union not to hold the conference. They have instead chosen to, you know, like, I don't know, academic explain. Down to the workers. Yeah. Why, yeah. in fact, the ultimate form of solidarity is actually crossing a picket line and holding a conference. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, if that's the kind Just of move that fighting. academics are going to make, it's it's hard to imagine that we're yeah. going to see the kind of advocacy that I might be imagining and hoping for. Yeah. Um, but I, I I do think this is a this is a moment we should take these moments when we finally get like you know Johanna said this before. This stuff happens, and we don't know it's happening because it does not see the light of day. It's effectively concealed most of the time. So this isn't an exceptional occurrence, but what is exceptional about it is the transparency that has occurred only because of the incredibly ardent investigative journalists of students because the sports media complex wasn't willing to do it, ESPN wasn't willing to do yeah. it. None of these; they weren't willing to burn their sources and compromise their access. But students on that campus, in yeah. a sense, stood up for other students, and that's the kind of solidarity we need to see from faculty.
2: Yeah, um, that that point should not be should not um, be missed here. That that was not only brilliant student journal; that was just brilliant journalism. Period. Let's not even put the um, put the sort of student uh, moniker on that. Um, and, and like there would be i think that says volumes about the sports media industrial complex we've talked about that we've belabored that that sort of point but um i i agree that it sends messages to faculty but i don't want to um be too optimistic with that because faculty have also like bought into a lot of the rhetoric and Nathan, you would you would agree? I think Johanna, you'd probably agree mm-hmm. here as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of the rhetoric that, like, so-called—actually, um, I won't even use that term—that campus athletic workers are like ungrateful; they don't work hard; uh, they're okay. just—they don't view as, um, their students as being worthy of their solidarity—and that's frightening. That's actually a horrifying development. That yeah. even in my young career in academia, I've seen change a lot, where there's a growing antagonism between students. And professors. And this is completely disconnected from the point, but I think that is actually stoked by our institutions of higher education, by mm-hmm. our administrations that want to see faculty and students disagreeing and not getting along um, yes. and having different motives and objectives in order to prevent said um, solidarity. So I, I, I want to urge all faculty that who listen to this um to don't buy into that rhetoric and again look at view students um in terms of um working together and build um avenues of solidarity rather than engage in any of this like horrible rhetoric that students are that any student can possibly be um not working hard um or um not not worthy of, of sitting in your classroom or any classroom. Um, so I guess that's just a word of warning. You just, that, that, you, you brought that up in my mind, Nathan.
1: And one thing I would just add is like, I think, I think universities and colleges, I think they stoke it, right. It's a divide and conquer tactic to keep us all like subjugated and quiet and complicit. Yeah. And I don't know how, like, how many times a year do we see faculty tweet, like whenever there's like an article about some, you know, facility or locker room getting an upgrade, how many faculty tweet about what if we use that money to rebuild yes. our library or yep. whatever. And Nathan, I always go back to that article. It might've been one of the first articles of yours that I ever read. Cause like I knew first of thing you. I ever wrote about
0: college sports. Oh, first okay. thing I ever wrote about college <laughs> That's sports.
1: why that's why that piece about was at LSU. I think. Yeah. Yes, and yes. I just, and I just, and I'm astounded. I mean, I had a colleague do it the other day and I had to say like, we are not entitled to be exploited. Like the money that comes from exploited college athletic workers. Like we are not yeah. entitled to that. And even if, even if, um, a university is losing money on their athletic program, it doesn't, it, athletes are still getting exploited for their labor. It still is racialized exploitation. So we are not entitled. So I just think you know, like so many faculty, they see athletics and they view it with jealousy and they view it with envy rather than see it as a structure that helps to subjugate, subjugate them as faculty and drive their wages down because it yeah. devalues the labor that we do in the classroom, right? Devalues it beneath the, like, um, the imperatives of capitalist sport, but then also obviously coerces and controls college athletic workers, right? So faculty solidarity for athletes. I just I don't see it. I mean, I see it, and like I see cases of it happening. I know colleagues that send up for athletes, but it's not this like concerted effort. Not to mention the fact that like higher ed is burning right. In five years, yeah. it probably it's not even not even going to exist. And faculty are fighting over fucking bylaws. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. they're they're fighting over like you know the 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 space they have in their offices for their books. Not that that's not an unworthy fight to fight, but like that is what. Faculty are doing, right? They are not actually fighting for their jobs. They're not fighting for. They're not going to fight to defend and try to protect students, whether they're athletes or not. So I just I have no hope for a faculty uh, faculty solidarity for athletes at all because they 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 accept the antagonism and they use that to to increase the wedge between them and athletics. I think.
0: I would honestly say amen to that, except that I don't really want to endorse the if, uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> spirit fair, of that sentiment. Fair, 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 fair.
0: <laughs> but I think that the analysis is very accurate. <laughs> um, okay, now just, Derek, just make a quick note here. This is a this is off the record now. Bra- just the bracketing comment. Um, yeah. This is going. This is lovely. This is going great. I love it. Here is what I'm, I've, I'm. I'm rejigging on the fly. We're going to actually, even though you're, you're like, wow, we're going really long on college support. We should probably stop. No, we're going to go all the way on college, and we're going <laughs> to seal it and it's gonna be an episode then yeah. we're gonna do one as a separate episode and we're gonna record it immediately can't can,
2: I, I can't though i can't Ugh. yeah yeah i can't yeah. with time <laughs> okay <laughs> we could do that tomorrow i'm i'm down with doing it another time um preferably, preferably monday <laughs> or tuesday to be okay. honest preferably but okay. I, right. I would i would do that I, oh, we can do that that's fine there's no
0: reason why we can't do that that just means that you have to edit out um
2: the uh Some of the
1: you intro. have to edit out
0: the tiny little thing in the intro where i said that we're going to talk about this and that yeah, yeah that's fine because like, you just have to cut like that one yeah, I'll thing cut, i'll cut it um but i don't because otherwise the whole we don't want to waste that whole intro because of, yeah. like, i've talked out endlessly about the different podcasts yeah. <laughs> we've had yeah um okay but but i think that this will be a better just, and then we'll have actually more content as a consequence of that yeah and no be for sure that episodes, and this has been really good so it i actually has. think that instead of like giving people two hours and they're just getting tired of it it'll be more like an hour and fifteen or whatever, yep. really like, and then we can talk about crisply on this topic. And then yeah. the other one, yeah, which I think we still have the foundation for. And there's a ton to say about, and it <clears> deserves <throat> its own as well. Okay, yeah. so yeah, I just want to break in those so that we were on the same page there, yeah. Because otherwise, I would have been getting really antsy if I was on your end about was like we're still talking about college sports
2: now, though. Don't Yeah, get I'm do like, oh topic? shit, I, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta go. <laughs> no, yeah. it's um, okay. What's your, what's your, what's your heart out? Uh, by the I'd way? say hard out maybe 20 minutes from now. Um, all right, okay. Well, I told okay. I, yeah, I told <laughs> Ali too, but I can kind of go okay. a little bit oh, okay, further. Okay, I got it. I got it. Okay, we're going to keep it moving then. Um
0: All right. Well, obviously we could keep talking about this particular issue all day, um, <laughs> because this is this is, you know, really gets to the heart of the things that we always care about. But the other thing, the, the story that probably most people if we had said, we're going to talk about the big issue in college sports yeah. this summer, the thing that most people would have talked about is this question of realignment because we always talk for our list. This is, this is, I guess, maybe like a deep cut for our non-college sport listeners. But we often talk about the Power Five, right? The Power Five conferences. And those are the conferences wh- that comprise about 65 plus universities um, where the most money is made in college sport. And it's a designation that relates to football because these are the conferences that have access directly to the football playoff. And that is where the most money is. That yeah. is where the networks invest the most of their... Um, that's where the networks are paying to to broadcast these and that becomes revenue for these universities. And those conferences are called, the the most lucrative is the Southeastern Conference, the SEC, then we have the Big Ten, we have the ACC, the Big 12, and the Pac-12. And what has happened is that these conferences have been in a mad scramble to maximize their broadcast revenue. And the SEC and the Big Ten have done the best in that scramble. And they have, in fact, partly done the best because they have colonized schools from other conferences in order to make themselves a more enticing entity for the broadcaster. And what happened very recently, and somewhat surprisingly to people, is that one of these conferences, the PAC-12, which has been the least, this is a West Coast conference, and that's where football is maybe thriving a little bit less. And by the way, like... I, it's also I, I timing for TV, bro-
2: for TV broadcasts. It's about timing, too.
0: You're right. G- that's a factor, Gary. That's an excellent point. The timing is a factor. But I'm also going to tip my hat slightly to the West Coast for perhaps a diminution of fetish for football culture that's yeah, happening yeah. in those major sure, urban though. centers, which is in the best interest of all human beings. So mm-hmm. um, that's, a, that's a good reason for maybe those lower numbers. But anyway, because of that the Pac-12 schools were scrambling. They tried to put together a deal with Apple for some kind of streaming situation. They didn't get the kind of number that those schools wanted. And what we saw kind of happen overnight because what what by the way, I should say, a precipitating factor was that the two probably most lucrative entities from the standpoint of broadcasters in the Pac-12 were the Los Angeles schools, USC, a private school, University of Southern California, and UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, a public school. They both went to the Big Ten already. Mm-hmm. They transferred to the, they switched to the Big Ten, even though all the Big Ten schools are in what's called the Midwest. And by the way, for you non-Americans out there, we call it the Midwest. It's actually basically in the East. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> that matters geographically for what we're talking about here, because that means that those schools on the absolute West Coast, literally in Los Angeles, are now going to be competing entirely with schools either on the East Coast itself, Rutgers, okay, is in yeah. New is New Jersey. This is on directly on the East Coast. Penn State is essentially on the East Coast. And then many other schools that are just off the East Coast in the Midwest, that's where they're going to be competing, right? Anyway, what happened is that precipitated a crisis in the Pac 12. They couldn't come up with the media value deal that they wanted. And so what happened is the Big 10 then successfully poached the University of Washington, the University of Oregon. So now the Big 10, Big 10, actually Big 18. There are yeah. 18 schools in the Big 10 now. And because that happened, we we actually saw the trickle. Weirdly, the University of Colorado made its way into the Big 12, which geographically makes some sense. They actually used to be in the Big 12, but I will not complicate it further. (laughs) And then Arizona, Arizona State and Utah, University of Utah, all also flipped to the Big 12, which is mostly Texas school for those wondering. And that means that there was only four schools left in the Pac-12. Stanford, Berkeley washington state and oregon state who knows how long that's going to last or what that's going to mean so we really have a big four now not a power four with four leftover schools on the side we have the group of five schools which round out the other schools that are in the sort of top division of the football conferences and we have now schools just playing with no geographical contiguity whatsoever yeah it's like they're just they're just What's the, what's the what's the issue,
2: Nathan? You have class at four thirty on a Friday. What and and a game at nine a.m. on the on the other opposite coast uh, on a Saturday. Why well, don't I don't see you what don't the issue is? You don't think that's
0: reasonable? I no. Just, okay. Well, listen. I got two. Quick, I'm going to let you dig into that. But two questions. The first one is the really easy one. Which, but I think that, you know we need to underscore. It. The first question is why is this realignment happening?
2: Capital Mo- money. Um, and seeking out the best cartel wage fixing conference where that is possible, where the most money is possible. This is, uh, in my view, this is just a bunch of athletic departments who are um, holding on, who are doing everything they possibly can to hold on to the share of revenue, to any revenue that they possibly can in the, th- the context of threats against that capital nil being like the one that we constantly talk to our NIL, uh, being the, the, the one we, we constantly talk about. But, um, I think there, many of these institutions are seeing the writing on the wall in terms of athletic mo- mobilization and seeing the, uh, a, a, a trend towards, or a, perhaps a trend towards, um, more and more power for athletes. And that means less and less power, um, for, Uh, the athletic departments and at the same time the NCAA as an institution as a non-for-profit organization is becoming less and less influential and I would actually argue is in my view going to be the scapegoat for a lot of this there will be in five years from now I doubt there is an NCAA there's just SEC um who uh, Pac 12 probably not but Big 10 Big 12 and ACC and that is what the NCAA is and that will cause enough um uh inconsistency and issues within the 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 context the environment of a collegiate um sport that it will prolong some of the labor mobilizations that we're seeing, so that these institutions can hold on to the revenue that will inevitably be go- be gone one day uh, for as long as they possibly can. That's my view of why this is happening. On uh, it has nothing to do with sports personship. It has nothing to do with competition. Very clearly, uh, let's just like fire UCLA in on a Saturday game against Rutgers, or even better on a Thursday night game um, against Rutgers. It makes no sense. It has no um, uh, competition uh, or sports personship at like it not it has it, its meaning. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever, or competition, or putting the best against the best. Um, it, it's it's solely about these in, these member institutions of the NCAA seeking out as much um, revenue as they possibly can.
1: So I actually have a question. So as someone who as you all know and listeners should know by now, like I don't pay attention to this stuff. I don't really understand a whole lot about conferences now they work. So why would this prolong labor mobilization? Is it because it would simply like exhaust the athletes from being able, you know, to the, to the point where they don't they have even less room to like consider, you know, unionizing and fighting back and resisting and that sort of stuff or is there something else that I'm missing?
2: Hold on. Uh yeah, I I don't think like the the fact that they are joining other conferences itself would prolong that movement. I think the inevitable in my view, the inevitable death of the NCAA will create enough chaos um where athletes will not feel as empowered to mobilize and to fight more for um for more things. There will be fewer big time colleges, there will be fewer conferences. Um and there will be fewer uh opportunities, uh, if you will, okay. um, and more more chance in my view, more chance of collusion that we've seen happen around things like nil, um, uh, more opportunities for like the big five schools to inevitably like reach the top, and there are very little opportunities um outside that, or very little um, opportunities in terms of making your money um elsewhere, uh, or or dealing with any kind of security. So I think the the inevitable death of the NC end- CAA itself will create the condition, the chaotic conditions where labor mobilization may, and hopefully, or not not hopefully, um, but may be quashed. Um, But perhaps the opposite could be true. This is the, the, I'm entirely speculating. Perhaps this could actually be the impetus for labor mobilizations, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which I would hope. Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
2: But I I, I don't bet against capital, unfortunately. I just simply don't.
1: Yeah. One, well, even, I mean, even if we're thinking, I mean, thanks to you. That was, thank you. That was really helpful. But like, if we're also thinking about the, the crumbling of higher ed, right. And like m- fewer and fewer schools being open and fewer and fewer seats for students to be able to attend anyways, right. Then it's all working towards this kind of like increased, like elitification of higher ed as well. So that I think that also makes sense of what you're saying.
0: Yeah. And and then I mean, look, the other thing, not not to say that this is like a, a really profound insight, but the the implication of this from the standpoint of those who actually produce the value in college sport, which is to say the athletes, um, is actually in a way, like you know, you, you both have been talking kind of about what that means in a sense for like, for instance, football players who might be involved in labor labor organizing. But the truth is like it really it goes beyond football in a very significant way because football is the schedule that will be affected least by these yeah. developments because it is a once a week sport. But what athletes have been saying, and in fact, they've been very public about this across almost all the other sports is like this is it's like it just completely makes the claim that we are student athletes impossible. To make, it, right? it, it, impossible. Because, and, and of course. Those are the very sports where the student athlete line is, you know, is screamed the loudest. And yet, the universities are proving here and and many other people have pointed this out, like, quite frankly, this is gonna be a real legal challenge for the kind of the the cartel that is these universities to uphold, because they've been making claims for decades in court that they're about amateurism, obviously. (laughs) But it's crystal clear that if you're literally going to force students multiple times a week to be traveling across the country instead of going to class, that school has nothing whatsoever to do with anything about this enterprise. And that means that your claim that this is about student athletes and amateurism is just not going to hold up. So there's a way in which I, I think that from a legal standpoint, we could see the death of amateurism as a consequence of this just because. I, one, we already know that the Supreme Court is not siding with the university. Amazingly, the, yeah. the, the absolutely like the, the sheer evil that is the Supreme Court, but nonetheless, still has somehow not come out on the <laughs> side of the universities, which really tells you something about these universities. Um, so it doesn't look great for them from that standpoint. But there's a lot of suffering that's going to go along the way, right? We're going to have many, many college athletes who have a greatly diminished experience. Because I'll tell you something: if you go to the University of Oregon. The difference in your experience between playing athletes at Oregon State and athletes at Northwestern or Rutgers is nothing. There's no difference. It's a different colored uniform. But the difference in your experience is now you're spending hours and hours in an airport, on an airplane, not doing your work, right? Like your life has changed dramatically for the worse. You've received no more compensation and no benefit, discernible benefit whatsoever. Right. The only benefit is someone at your university is going to be paid more because there's now more revenue. You get a cut of Big 10 revenue. You get a cut of Big 12 revenue. But because again, you're not paid. So you, as an athlete, don't get a cut of the revenue. But guess who does? The athletic director, maybe the president, certainly the coaches, the athletic department. There are plenty of beneficiaries, but all of the harm, as always, falls on the athletes and Mm -hmm. none Mm -hmm. of the benefits accrue to them.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Let's remind for the millionth time that NIL is not payment for play. Mm-hmm. NIL is not payment for labor. NIL is payment for additional, additional labor outside of playing a sport for an exchange with a university. That NIL is a third party paying.
1: It's a cover. Right. It's a cover.
2: Yes. yes. It is. Yep. yes. I will always say it has been that. Yeah, I just did a, I just, just to see what the kind of mainstream media, mainstream sports media, um, was talking about, uh, in terms of conference realignment, I just did a Google search into, into uh, like Google, Google news search. And the top ones that came up are college football realignment. Who's to blame college sports realignment. What teams make up ends each NCAA conference, uh, Conference realignment greed could spark CFP format change. College football playoff must be revamped after conference realignment. It's all like literally meaningless jargon meant to distract you from the, the core issues here. It's like, Oh, what teams make up the new conferences? Oh, we might have to change our, our playoff structure in order to align or to um, deal with these changes. It has no substance. There's no substance to any of those issues.
0: Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. Okay. There's, we got to hit
2: one more issue. I know we we're almost
0: yeah. out of time here today, but there's one more issue that I really think like we, we have to, we have to resist normalization, which has happened. This is not just a college sports issue, but I'm going to look at it from a college sports angle. But this is an issue that has that is like increasingly kind of colonizing the entire universe of high performance sport and spectatorship, and we cannot allow it to be normalized. And that is the question of gambling. Mm-hmm. Recently, in the context of college sport, we have seen scandals take place. At Iowa and Iowa State, so far, seven current and former athletes, and there's more coming, have been charged, have actually been charged in the gambling scheme with gambling on college sport, okay? So we have this as a new item, like, oh, it's horrifying. These athletes are gambling, and they're involved in the sport. At the same time, I want to tell you that per their own press release, I'm quoting ESPN's own press release, quote, ESPN has signed a licensing deal with Penn Entertainment to create ESPN Bet a sports book for audiences in the United States. Penn will rebrand its current sports book to ESPN Bet later this fall in the 16 states where it is licensed. The rebrand will include a mobile app, website, mobile website, and mutually agreed upon retail location. Penn agreed to pay ESPN $1.5 billion billion in cash over 10 years, as well as grant ESPN $500 million of warrants to purchase approximately 31.8 million common shares of Penn. Okay? That is to say that the sports media complex that has already been benefiting from the unpaid labor of college athletes is now also going to be benefiting from gambling on those athletes. And we know it's about college sport because you know what? ESPN just announced that it was going to include a gambling analyst on its game day, its big marquee game day broadcast on Saturday, right? So this is pure, unadulterated normalization of gambling. But here's what I want to ask you both. This is because this is myself, you might be like, Nathan is such a Puritan. He hates gambling. Like, listen, <laughs> let us gamble. It's fun, there's pleasure. People make choices in their lives. What, let me ask you though. I'm gonna ask you like I'm asking my students, why should we care about gambling in sports, especially when it comes to college athletes?
2: Before I answer that question, and maybe I'll just like say this and then pass it to Johanna, but I I I can't talk about this without pointing out for listeners that Penn Entertainment is the owner, the full owner of Barstool Sports and the whole, the whole reason that they are doing this ESPN bet or what they're actually doing here is they're renaming Barstool Sportsbook that already exists as ESPN bet. So Uh. when we talk about, Gam. There, there are multiple things happening here. We could talk about gambling and sport, and how does it um, concern us? It concerns me in a, a million possible ways. Um, but also, there's that underlying. Very specifically on this case, there's um, ESPN is uh, compl- complicit, not surprisingly, with um, barstool sports, and you can't disconnect those things as um, being part of the the um, media, uh, the college sport media industrial complex. That's
1: disgusting. I am as felt. I don't my bed. When <laughs> you said that, football, barstool sports, um, but of course it's happening. Um, why does that concern me? It concerns me because the athletes can't take part in it. Um, I mean, it's just for, and it further like dehumanizes athletes. Um, and it, it it reminds me of the um like the case in the NFL of the fourteen uh, NFL veteran players who like defrauded supposedly the insurance plan. And I remember when I saw that news come out like a couple, a year or two ago, being like applauding the athletes and being very like pro player and that, and someone in my life getting very mad at me that I was saying those things that I was like cheering on fraud uh, of the NFL, but like, let the athletes make money from sport. And like, why are people allowed to further dehumanize athletes and like yell and scream at them and have these unrealistic expectations and like you know basically enacts like verbal if not physical violence of them online like i just think that i just think that college the, the gambling further um makes college sport even more disgusting because it encourages fans to um see athletes as figures for entertainment and nothing else
0: yeah, yeah. no not the, okay go ahead
1: Derek. Go
2: ahead. i just yeah i agree the main, the main issue there for me like I, the most important issue to me is that it's tens of thousands of collegiate athletes that aren't going to to get any compensation whatsoever from this from this massive economy. They you could there will be people in the comments oh but they they might sign NIL deals. Yeah, that's a, I guess a possibility, but that's still not coming from the economy of Uh, of sports betting. So very clearly these athletic workers, it's a new form of exploitation that just replaces old. So that's, that's obviously there as well. Um, and you, you you'd be remiss without saying like, it just, the message it sends, the fact that people will get addicted to a, a highly addicting thing that changes behaviors, changes the, um, psychosocial, uh, um, livelihood of people, um, and forces in some well, maybe not forces in some ways compels people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do, um, and interact with athletes in, in horrible ways. I, I always think when it comes to gambling of the worst possible, um, situation and what, what could possibly happen. And I could see, and i I think it's not unreasonable to see like athletes athletic workers who would be targeted and um uh targeted in terms of forms of violence from people who have lost everything or in desperate um sort of um places in their lives so like there for those two reasons I think it's it's like atrocious that every time I turn on the television and I'm watching any sports doesn't matter what it is um I see 20 advertisements for um sports betting um from 20 different sports better sports books or whatever they're called um so it's actually a horrifying development in sport
0: yep i uh, i i really you you both hit on it i opposed to the question and you 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 really covered the ground that i, that I was <laughs> hoping for i mean i just want to underline that the last point that was the last point for both of you um to me, above all, like there's all the compensation piece. And like to me, I kind of like you, Johanna. I sort of laugh. Like those athletes, those athletes can get a piece, like power to them.
2: But yeah. uh, mm-hmm. no,
0: I mean, the thing, it's it's abuse. I mean, like, we we know it is it is undeniable at this point, mm-hmm. and it's crystal clear that gambling on sports is like really the primary cause of abusive behavior from fans toward athletes yeah. on social media, in person everywhere. Just like a massive as gambling has become liberalized in North America. The kind of abuse that athletes have subject been subjected to by fans in North America has, in a kind of concomitant way, also increased. Um, and we are, I mean, again, we go back to the question we were talking about earlier. Like, is it different in higher education? No. Like, your point's right, Derek. Like, we should be worried about this across sport. but. Yeah. I mean, when we're talking about a context where the players are even uncompensated, then it becomes, you know, truly indefensible, yeah. right? Because you can't make the case, well, part of what they, like like we used to hear about when we were kids going to honestly to, like the Sky Dome and we want to like heckle a player and be like, well, that's part of their job, right? Like they're getting mm-hmm. paid a lot and we're as a fan, we have the right to heckle them. And like now I realize that's not appropriate. I bad. you're making bad working conditions for people. Yep. And it's like they, they haven't actually signed up for that but like at least they are getting a wage and they might even in their own minds reconcile the fact that like part of what they're getting paid for is to cope with these annoying working conditions while they do their job. But college athletes aren't getting any of that. They just aren't. They're not getting any compensation. They're supposed to be learning about sports. Instead, they're getting abuse from fans who have lost a wager. Um, It's just morally indefensible. And so, you know, this is where I started and I want to finish it we can't allow this to be normalized. Like yeah. every single time you see a gambling ad or you see any of these networks talk about the lines or anything, got to try to push back, got to try to defamiliarize. It's, I mean, I keep saying this on Twitter, it's depraved. It is depraved to dehumanize people this way for direct profit. And, you know, like it that's not, that's not the world of sport that I want
2: to be participating in. hmm mm-hmm. I, I couldn't close it better myself. I, I'm sure Johanna might agree or maybe not. I don't want to speak for you, but uh, just thank you for listening to another episode of the end of sport. We are continuing with our summer of lots of content. So please, uh, like Nathan was saying in the intro, check out our back catalog from the past few weeks or past few months. Uh, There's a lot of amazing stuff and a lot more stuff on the way that we can't wait to share with you. So please like, share, subscribe, all those things. Um, Leave a review on uh, Apple, iTunes, iPodcasts or whatever, and Spotify, all those things. And thank you so much for listening.